how I'm going to go through all that. Uh, we're going to be in uh, 2 Corinthians 10. So I'm going to review everything in 2 Corinthians up to where we are. And then, um, uh, so just talking about going forward on Wednesday nights, um, this will be the first of four more nights in 2 Corinthians. Then we'll be done with 2 Corinthians. Uh, I've started preparing for the next four nights, four Wednesdays after that. So that'll start February 1st. Um, those next four Wednesday nights will be topical on spiritual gifts. For whatever reason, people have been asking about spiritual gifts a lot. So I thought maybe that's an indication we should study that. Um, of course, I've also found that the people who have asked about spiritual gifts won't come to the study, but it, you'll, you'll enjoy it. So, um, And then, and then <clears throat> the three weeks after that, so that'll be uh, the first three Wednesdays in March, uh, I, I think that's the way that the calendar looks, is we're going to do another membership class. We do that two or three times a year. And so that'll, we'll just, we'll, for new people, if they want to do membership, that'll be uh, three Wednesday nights. So Trey, Tyler, James, and I will do that. So that's what that's looking like. And then um, after, uh, after the membership class, I'm not sure where we'll go. I'll probably, I, I will do one of two things. I'll either pick up again in another book of the Bible uh, or uh, I'll do uh, something on marriage. Now, I may not do the marriage thing until the fall because we're going to be doing that beautiful union study Sunday mornings starting right after um, Easter, which is about biblical sexuality, but it's going to have a lot of stuff about marriage and family and children in it as well. So th those of you that weren't here, our lead pastor at Tempe is, a, is an author as well. He's written a number of books, and he's got a new one coming out in March called Beautiful Union, and it's about biblical sexuality and marriage and those kinds of things. And we got, uh, we got advanced copies of the book. It's really good. And uh, we had a big study day today for six hours with him leading it. And it was, it was really good and really helpful to help us to preach on, on it in, uh, in uh, April and May. So, um, so that's kind of what that's looking like. Uh, I want to mention Sunday mornings, though, to you. I, I started to talk about that. So this Sunday... If you've been around for any length of time at Redemption Arcadia, uh, this coming Sunday is essentially the first Sunday of, of the year. I know it's January 1st, but we had that hymn service and, that Tyler Thompson did, which I heard was great. I was out of town, but I heard it was great, and a lot of people showed up for it. And then he preached on the 12 days of Christmas, whatever. So um, anybody go to it? Yeah, it was really good, right? Yeah, I heard it was great. Yeah, so... Um, so, but this is like the first regular Sunday coming up. So if you've been around a while, you know that what I do on the first Sunday of the year is uh, our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, had this past year, present year evaluation that he would do every first Sunday of the year uh, at East Valley Bible Church and then at Re uh, Gilbert, Redemption Gilbert. And so I've been doing that lately, sort of in honor of Tom, but also have my own little twist on it. So how was 2022, and how do you make 2023 the best year of your life, that sort of thing, but from a spiritual and biblical perspective. Uh, and then on the 15th, um, I'm taking another Sunday to do a one-off. The rest of Redemption is actually starting on this coming Sunday. They're starting four weeks, uh, a series on money uh, out of Luke chapter 12. We're going to do it in two weeks. We're going to do it on the 22nd and 29th of January. 
One of the reasons we're doing it that way is because we feel like we've talked a lot about money this last fall with the sacred space thing coming up. And uh, if you think you're worn out about us talking about money, we're worn out too. So, so we're just going to do it in two weeks. And I'm also even going to do it a little bit differently on those two weeks. I'm going to get up and um, I'll, I'll, I'll speak for 15 or 20 minutes on Luke 12. And then I'm going to invite um, somebody from the uh, congregation to come up. Uh, a business person to come up and we're going to have like a 15 or 20 minute interview with them and talk about those biblical perspectives in the midst of that. Uh, we're going to do that both those Sundays. The 15th is going to be a one-off and I'm calling it the state of the church and uh, it's going to be some pretty heavy, pretty serious stuff in terms of what's going on in culture and how is the church going to be able to uh, react to it because there's a lot of really wild stuff going on. And um, it, I have to give a warning even this coming Sunday that I, I practiced it with the other pastors just to say, I don't do this hardly ever, but I said, I want to make sure that you guys don't catch a lot of heat or flack for this. And so I practiced w- with them uh, Tuesday morning and they said, no, it's fine, but you are going to have to tell families not to have their kids come into the service. <laughs> so it's going to be some pretty heavy stuff. So what I'm going to say this Sunday is uh, next Sunday will be PG-13, so... We're not going to let any kids in underneath, uh, under, under 13, uh, without a parent uh, there to help take them out when it gets really crazy. So, anyway, uh, that'll all be fun. But it'll be some pretty serious stuff. Where's yeah? The, book the, the annual book review comes at the end of the Schrader past year, present year. So this coming Sunday, I'll have my list of books. Um, it's not the most exciting list I've ever put together, but it's maybe one of the most important. Okay. Yeah. I know that a lot of things going on that when you're talking about marriage, children, and family, but also about like the um what you're gonna talk about is what does the Bible mention about abortions. Abortion? Yeah, we'll talk about abortion, we'll talk about divorce, we'll talk about all that stuff. In fact, Sunday the fifteenth I'm gonna talk a little bit about abortion too. But it's going to be within the context of, uh, well, you'll, you'll hear about it on the 15th. Okay, just, yeah, there's, there's stuff in there. Yeah, you bet. So here's 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, Paul starts off, and he's in a really good mood. And he goes for like seven chapters, just like reinforcing, um, obviously, gospel doctrine and uh, but, he's, but he's more upbeat than he's been with the Corinthians, these first seven chapters. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he then gets, starts to get a little bit tough with them again because now he's going to talk about what's called the Jerusalem offering. The mother church in Jerusalem is going through a famine, and so Paul and his uh, guys were organizing an offering uh, from all of these churches around the Mediterranean for the Jerusalem church because they really needed some financial help. And... Paul decides to take two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, to remind the Corinthians of their commitment to helping the Jerusalem church because they were really gung-ho about it up front, and then they started to pull back. And uh, they're the richest of all the churches, the most well-resourced of all the churches around the Mediterranean, but now they're not giving nearly as much as the less-resourced, smaller churches like Philippi, Thessalonica, um, uh, Col- Colossae, all of those churches. So now he's, 
Uh, and, he, and he gets into, I hate to use the word passive aggressive, but it feels a little passive aggressive where, where he says, uh, listen, you, you, really, you really don't have to give. You shouldn't feel compelled to give. But on the other hand, I can hardly call you a loving church if you don't give, you know. So he's kind of using that passive aggressive guilt that Paul is very good at. Uh, but since he's an apostle, we'll excuse him for that. But at the end of chapter 9, <clears throat> um, apparently what happens is he gets a very bad report now from somebody who has been visiting the church in Corinth, a bad report that says, listen, the Corinthians are now upset at you again, and one of the reasons is because uh, there's been this group of other men who have come in who uh, claim to be apostles of a higher order than you, Paul, and any of your friends, Silas, Timothy, Luke, whoever, um, and so they're of a higher order, and they're starting to teach a different gospel than you, and they're also kind of throwing you under the bus. And so chapter 10 starts with Paul's defense, and this defense goes on for 10, 11, and most of, all of 12, and then, and then a good part of 13 even is, is the last chapter is his defense. The meat of his defense is in 11, 16 through 12, uh, 13. And we're not going to get there until at least next week. Um, but all of what we're looking at now is preliminary for that, uh, the meaty part of his defense. The meaty part of his defense is called Paul's foolish speech. That's how people refer to it. Uh, and we get a taste of that in the very beginning of chapter 10. Let me read those first six verses, which is where we left off uh, last time we were together about four weeks ago. Uh, starting with 10.1, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. There's a little snark there. Okay. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to, uh, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against someone who suspects us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish with every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I'm sorry, he doesn't talk, start talking about the word foolishness until the beginning of 11, which we'll get there tonight. But... Uh, and I'll explain that when we get there. But that is the beginning of Paul's defense. And what he begins with is dealing with the accusations that these new apostles uh, are, are, are leveling against Paul without Paul being in Corinth to defend himself. But the people in Corinth are being easily swayed and influenced and manipulated by these guys. So he, he makes a defense on the, against the first accusation in those six verses. And then... In 7 through 12, he makes a defense against the next two accusations. Tonight, we're going to get through 11.3. That's as far as we're going to get tonight. Because 11.1 through 6 is really thick, and it's going to take us a while to get through that. But look at uh, chapter 10, verses 7 through 12. He writes, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is in Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is in Christ, so are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. 
I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do in present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So Paul starts this paragraph by reminding them that he's as much of a Christian as these other, quote, apostles are, though later, admittedly, he's going to argue that he's actually more of a Christian uh, than these apostles. And I believe this is legitimate. And he says, the reason I'm more of a Christian, the reason I'm more of an apostle, the reason I have more authority is because I actually preach the true gospel and they're preaching a false gospel. But also in this paragraph, we see two more accusations by the interlopers. Um, and one of them seems to be at odds with the complaint that's mentioned in the previous paragraph. So if you're wondering what the complaint was in the previous paragraph, I'm going to tell you in, in just a second. So this first accusation is that they say Paul is a wimp when he's in person, but his letters are courageous. They're bold. So what's happening now is they're making fun of Paul's supposed in-person wimpiness. They're making fun of him. Okay, But in the previous paragraph, they were complaining that he was a coward in person and wanted him to be bold. And they were using this as evidence that Paul was a hypocrite. So now... Anybody who comes and reads this now, we all ask the same question. Which is it? Are you calling Paul a wimp or a hypocrite? Do you want him weak in person or do you want him strong in person? Which is it? You can't seem to make up your mind. Okay? And then the other accusation is this. These guys like comparing themselves to others and Paul really hates this. So they're comparing themselves to others as well as comparing themselves to Paul. And they're saying they're better than Paul. And they have all these different reasons why none of which actually work. But this comparison, contemporarily, this comparison process is known as the social comparison process. And it's something that all of us do. We all do this. Now, we may not talk about it out loud as much as these other apostles were. But we all do this. We all compare ourselves to to each other. It's just part of our nature. I would say our fallen nature, but it's what we do. So the social comparison process, I'm going to get a little bit academic here, but I think it'll help. The social comparison process is one of the four major factors uh, that we all use in uh, coming up with what's known as our self-concept. In other words, our self-concept is how we perceive or understand ourselves. Now, some of you are like, is that self-esteem? No, self-esteem is something completely different, okay? There's self-concept and there's self-esteem. Now, I'm in academia, and I can tell you that there, there's plenty of teaching about self-esteem in all the classes, lots of teaching about self-esteem. You're wonderful, you're worthy, you deserve, you're, you're so good, oh, you're just perfect the way you are, uh, building up people's self-esteem, self-esteem, self-esteem. The definition of self-esteem is literally how worthy or valuable you think you are. Self-concept is completely different. We teach it in the communication um, uh, departments, but that's about the only place you teach. They teach self-esteem in math. They teach self-esteem in biology. They teach self-esteem in criminal justice. Uh, But in in communication, we teach self-concept because it's important in communication theory to understand how we think about ourselves. So 
Self-esteem is how valuable or worthy we think we are. Self-concept is how we perceive or understand ourselves, who we think we are. Four major factors in understanding what our self-concept is. And here's the first one. It's called the looking glass self. It's called the looking glass self. Here's what that means. It's what we think other people think of us. So you're sitting there going, like Randy's looking at me really intently right now. So I'm like, what is Randy thinking of me? And I think I know what Randy is thinking of me. And so that becomes part of my self-concept. You follow that? Okay. So Tony Ranke, the scholar Tony Ranke talks about this. I love this quote, okay? He talks about the looking glass self. And he's talking about it in terms of this is how silly some of this stuff is and how, and how it's really not that helpful. He writes this. We are not who we think we are. We are not even who others think we are. We are who we think others think we are. (laughs) Do you see how far removed from reality that is? But that's one of the factors, the number one factor right now in our self-concept. We're sitting around going, what do other people think of us? Okay. There's another term for this in, in the discipline. It's called the imaginary audience. Have you ever heard of that? Okay, the imaginary audience is we all think everybody's watching us. So we're really concerned about how we look and what we say and all that because we're so concerned that everybody's watching us. Here's a little secret. Everybody else thinks that everybody's watching them, so they're not watching you, so you don't have to worry about it. But it's this thing called the imaginary audience, okay? So that's the first thing, the looking glass cell. The second thing is the social comparison process. We love comparing ourselves to other people. We want to know, how do I stack up? How do I measure up, okay? And we do this everywhere. We do it in academics. We do it in salary and position. We do it in, in social media prowess, okay? I remember on Twitter, when I hit 100, woo! I celebrated for five seconds. Now I need 400, okay? And, and I know the people that hit 4,000, they're like, woo, now I need 10,000. The people that hit 10,000, it's the same thing, okay? Harvard um, School of Business did a study years ago, and I'm sure it's still true today, that said the person who's making $50,000 a year, they're sure that if they just made 60, all of their problems would be solved. The person who's making 60, though, says if they just made 75, they're sure all their problems would be solved. The person making 75, can you see where this is going? Okay, so you got somebody making 250, and they're going, if I just made four, 400, I'd be fine. Okay, you see how this works? Okay, so the self... (laughs) I'm going to stay on this social comparison process. By the way, the gym, too. You know, you go to the gym and you're walking around going, ooh, look at that person. They're working on their flactoids. Okay, that's a Brian Regan line. Anyway, um, so academics. So does anybody know what the FERPA laws are, F-E-R-P-A? Okay, the FERPA laws say that uh, an instructor, a professor, a teacher is not allowed to discuss a student's grades or any other information, but especially their grades, with anybody else. And this is really kind of hard at um, the community colleges because most people think community college is still like high school. So occasionally I get parents calling me and going, how's my son or daughter doing in your class? And I'm like, I can't tell you. I'm not allowed to. It's against the law. It's the FERPA law. And they're like, no, you don't understand. I'm paying their tuition. You can tell me. No, I can't. I can't tell you. You ask your son or daughter how they're doing, okay? Let them tell you. I know they may lie to you, but let them tell you, okay? 
but it's like when I'm passing back a quiz, I have to fold, you know, I have to fold the paper like this. Now, once they take the paper, they can open it up and they can show whoever they want what, how they did on the quiz. And by the way, some students do, but, but until, you know, I have to make sure. When I was at um, GCU, when I started back in school, some of you I needed, I was on the 19-year plan in college. It took me 19 years to get through college. I took like a 15-year a, a break in the middle. Anyway, so when I went back to GCU in 1994, um, one of our Bible professors thought that they came up with a really good way of getting around the FERPA laws, but still being able to post grades. So he had a, he had a uh, program on his computer where he would get the last four digits of your social security number. Apparently he got that from the administration. So the last four digits of your social security number and then listing all the social security numbers and then across this way it would have, you know, um, major exam number one and then it would, it would show the, your percentage going down. And so and then he would post that in the middle of the Fleming uh, uh, classroom uh, building in the hallway, okay? Well, you got creepers like me who figure out that if you just lean against the opposite wall, kind of acting like you're minding your own business, the, the, the numbers were, were so small that you would always, any person who was going to check their scores on the essay would go and use their finger until they found their social, and then they would go over to see, and so you're kind I'm, oh, yeah, okay, now I know what she's getting on her exams, and I know the last four of her social security. So he had to stop doing that, you know, because that wasn't working either. Anyway, so, but we're just, we're dying to know. We just want to know, okay? So that's the second one. The third one is, is culture. Our culture has a lot to do with um, our self-concept, how we see uh, ourselves. Um, have you ever heard of the term ethnocentricity or ethnocentric? Okay, so all of us are ethnocentric to some extent. E ethnos meaning nation or ethnicity, and centric meaning I'm, I'm in the middle, I'm, I'm this in the center, okay? Ethnocentrism or ethnocentricity means my culture is better than yours. No matter what, mine's better than yours, okay? So that's another uh, way we understand self-concept. And then the fourth factor is our own evaluations of our own thoughts and behaviors. So not only are we thinking about what other people think about us, but we're also po constantly processing our own thoughts, behaviors, and communication. And that becomes a big part of uh, how we see ourselves uh, as well. Anyway, this comparison process is natural for all of us in our fallen state. But it's also very unhelpful. Paul hates it. He speaks against it in several places in the New Testament. He says uh, you, you should quit doing it. He says the only, if you want to compare yourself to somebody, there's one person you should compare yourself to. Who do you think it is? No, it, it's, um, it's uh, uh, Tom Brady. No, it's, it's Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus, okay? That's the only person you should be comparing yourself to. Uh, he also does, um, uh, he also says this, he says, furthermore, you shouldn't be so obsessed about other people, but rather you should be doing some honest self-assessment on yourself. Honest self-assessment on yourself. In Galatians, he writes this, if anyone thinks he is something, like we all do, and then he says, when he is nothing, like we all are, <laughs> If anyone thinks he is something when, we, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. 
Why would he be boasting in his neighbor? Here's why. He's comparing himself to his neighbor. He's determined that he's better than his neighbor, so now he's boasting in his neighbor, that his neighbor is less. Okay? So you've got to stop doing that, he says. And he's, that's exactly what these false apostles, these false teachers are doing to him. And then in verse 8, Paul says that, you know, at, at times he does need to remind him, uh, remind them of his true authority as uh, an apostle. But he says, I'm only doing it out of love for you in order that you might live in the joy of the gospel life. These false apostles were tearing Paul down and building themselves up for one purpose, their own personal gain. That's it. It was all about power and wealth. Okay? And Paul insists in this paragraph here, he says, look, if you want me to say in person what I'm willing to write, I'm happy to come and do that. And in fact, I'm going to come and do that. We find out that he is going to come and make a third, later on in this letter, he is going to make a third visit to Corinth, and he's, and he's warning them that it's probably not going to be very pleasant uh, for them. We'll get to that uh, in, in the fourth week, okay? Um, and he also says in chapter 12, by the way, he says, and by the way, when I was there in person, I did confront you when I needed to confront you. So none of this, none of these arguments that these other apostles are giving you hold any water, he says these are all ridiculous arguments, and, and they, are, um, they are about issues that have nothing to do with uh, a constructive faith community. He says that's the other problem here, is that they're, they're coming after all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with building a good faith community, has nothing to do with the gospel, has nothing to do with what the church is called to do. They're all ancillary, peripheral issues. So... Here's a question. Is it true that people in churches can get so wound up about things that don't matter at all? Is that true? Does that really happen? In no, it never happens, especially not in the 21st century. So moving on. Verses 13 through 18. But we will not boast beyond limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we do... We did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We planted you. We do not boast beyond. Uh, we do not boast beyond the limit of our labor in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our areas of influence among you may be genuine, greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another areas of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So verse 13, he says, he, Paul says, listen, we're going to stay in our lane. But he says, here's the thing, though. Our lane is exactly what you need. So our lane is going to be what's best for you. In verse 14, he says, you can trust our motives and you can trust that we love you genuinely. In other words, Paul says, we're not in this for ourselves, unlike the stupid apostles. I mean the super apostles. And verses 15 and 16, here's what Paul's talking about. These other guys have been taking credit for all the good that's been happening in Corinth. So they've come riding in after Paul's done all the hard work of planting the church and getting them up and running. And now they're growing and they're growing in their influence. And then Paul leaves, and these guys come running in and going, it's all us. Have you ever met anybody in the marketplace like that? 
Nah, <laughs> never, right? Okay, but they've been taking credit for all of Paul's work. Paul never built his ministry on the back of others. Never did that. He builds his ministry on the power of the gospel. And here's the other thing that Paul does. If anyone else has done well, he gives them all the credit. He's, he's constantly giving away credit. Okay? And that's not what any of these other guys are doing. Have you ever heard the term carpetbaggers? Anybody ever heard that term? That's what these guys are. They swoop in. They take what they can. They take all the credit for the work of others. And then they swoop out of town. They're just carpetbaggers. And again, I think that's a southern term, isn't it? Is anybody, yeah, okay. Interloper? It is a southern term? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Representative from Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that's right. You went to school in Oklahoma. There weren't any schools in California you could go to? <laughs> I'm kidding you, right? All right, so once again, one of the reasons Paul wants to go, wants the Corinthians to grow up in their faith and pay attention not to these false prophets is because Paul would really, 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 really like to direct his ministry efforts into places where there's a shortage of people doing ministry. So what's happened is the church in Corinth has become a high-maintenance church. Have you ever known anybody who's high-maintenance? Anybody here behind me? Anybody want? Okay, no? Okay. All right. That's the problem, though. The, the, the church in Corinth has literally become too much of a drag on the, whole, on the human resources of the ministry that's going on around uh, the Mediterranean because they can't seem to grow up. They just can't seem to grow up in their faith. So verse 17 is the payoff verse. Boasting needs to be done in Christ and not in the self. Um, Margaret Thatcher, uh, some of you have maybe heard of her. She was Prime Minister of England for a while, like back in Reagan's days. Okay, and I'm not talking about Reagan the singer who was here four years ago. I'm talking about Ronald Reagan. Okay, um, so Margaret Thatcher once gave a talk in the 80s on leadership. Here's one of the most famous lines from that talk. Now remember, this is a talk about leadership, but... Uh, Thatcher uses Aristotle's enthymeme to perfection when she says this. She's talking about leadership, and she says this. If a woman has to tell people she's a lady, she probably isn't one. So if you're somebody who's running around telling everybody, I'm a great leader, I'm a great leader, I'm a great leader, you're probably not one. Okay? But this is what these apostles are doing. They're walking around going, we're great, we're great, we're great. And Paul's saying, no, somebody who's doing that probably isn't great. Somebody who's claiming apostleship in the way that they're doing it, they're probably not really apostles. So they would, these guys would fit perfectly into the 21st century ethos. Can I get an amen? Yeah, thank you. So then Paul moves um, into the body of his defense in chapter 11. Now, chapter 11 <clears throat> is a longer chapter. It's a famous chapter. There's a lot going on in it, and it's important to fully unpack it, and that's why it's going to take us another three weeks to get through the rest of this um, letter. Uh, I'm going to read the first six verses, and for the rest of the evening, we're only going to get through the first three verses. So we're going to have to come back next week and pick it back up there, and I'll review and everything. But uh, I want us to get started on, verse, on chapter 11. So here you go, first six verses. 
And this is where he talks about the foolishness. He says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. He says, I'm going to become foolish now. He says, do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that the serpent, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, it's a reference to Genesis 3, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. That's snarky there when he calls them super apostles. Okay? Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. That's one of the reasons there that most people believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh uh, was actually his speech impediment. He's not very good at speaking, at public speaking. So, um, verses 1 and 2 set up this entire chapter. One scholar says it this way. The first two verses of this paragraph in chapter 11 foreshadow Paul's foolish speech. Foolish but certainly needed speech and defense of himself in his ministry starting in 1116 and going through 1213. There's just this long strand in there. That's really interesting. So Paul asked the Corinthians to allow him some foolishness. Now when he says, I want to be foolish, allow me this foolishness, bear with me, it's half snarky, half serious. Okay? Paul wants to now argue his authority, his position, and his concern for the Corinthians in a way that resembles more of a worldly approach than a faith-centered approach. But he believes that he needs to do this in order to jolt the Corinthians into finally understanding the fragility of the foundation that they are building with these interlopers, with these carpetbaggers. And he says in verse 2 that the reason he needs to do this is because he has a divine jealousy for them. Now, what does that mean? And, and he's saying it in a positive way. He's saying, this is good that I have a divine jealousy for you. So what is he saying? So here you go. Isn't jealousy bad? Okay. It is when jealousy is corrupted by sin, which is pretty much how, the rest, how we all get jealous. It's corrupted by sin. Let me take a minute to unpack this a little bit. What Paul is saying here is that the jealousy being cast on the Corinthians, in this case, is pure and unsullied jealousy. It's jealousy without sin. It's a holy jealousy. See, this is what sin does to emotions. Uh, you know in Genesis 1, where God says, let us make human beings uh, in our image, in our likeness? So a big question is always, what does it mean to be uh, created in the image of God? So if you ever go to seminary and you take a systematic theology class, that's one of the papers you have to write. And you have to make an argument for it. And there's all kinds of different uh, possibilities. I, I would argue that uh, the, two main poss- uh, the, the two main ways that we bear the image of God are right there in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, and that would be we were created for relationship. God exists in relationship, the Trinity. And we were uh, created to um, produce, to work, to be, be little c creators. Those are the primary ways that we bear the image of God. And by the way, 
During the creation narrative in chapter one, you have six different benedictions. At the end of each day, God looks and saw that things were what? Good. There is a malediction in chapter two. It's the first malediction in the Bible. It's chapter two, uh, verse 18. What does God say? It is not good that the man is alone. That's because he's not bearing God's image because he's not in relation. He's in relationship with God, but he has no relationship like this. God has relationship like this in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? So those are the two ways. A lot of people argue, though, that we are uh, created in God's image because we're emotional beings and God is emotional as well. I believe that's part of our image bearing, too. It's not as big or as important as those uh, other two, but it's part of our image bearing. <clears throat> God is emotional. We are also emotional. The problem is, is that our emotions are subtle, sullied by sin. Our emotions are corrupted by sin. So think about, think about love. God's love is perfect. His love for us is perfect. Ours can approach perfection in the gospel, but the reality is, is that our love is never perfect, it's never whole, it's never unsullied, and it's never faultless. We can get close with the gospel, but there's always that little bit in there that's that flesh, the, the, the sinful desires that creeps in. Read Romans 7. Okay? And that's the same with other emotions like jealousy. In my 63 years, until Monday evening, in my 63 years, I cannot ever think of a time that the word jealousy was used in a positive way to describe how one person relates to another. It's always used negatively. Until Monday night, we were watching episode eight of the latest Yellowstone um, series uh, season, and um, what's it, Jimmy's girlfriend, he gets a little jealous, and she goes, ooh, I like it that you're jealous. Okay, I was like, okay, what's wrong with you? That's not good. Anyway, that's the first time in 63 years, and it was a screen. So it's not even real. It's a TV show, okay? So anyway, uh, so we don't use jealousy in a positive way. It's always a negative way, right? Okay? So here's, here's what I hear. I often hear this from people when they hear that God is jealous for his people. Here's how they respond to that. See, God shouldn't be jealous. That's wrong for God to be jealous. God is not good. God is not holy. He's jealous. No, you don't understand pure, unsullied, holy, divine jealousy. There's a difference between our jealousy and God's jealousy. God's jealousy is he's jealous for what's best for the other. Our jealousy is that we are jealous for what's best for us. That's a huge difference. And that jealousy that we have is all corrupted by sin. Okay? We struggle to understand that. But what Paul is saying here is that he's going to engage in this seemingly foolish way of presenting his argument to the Corinthians because he loves them, he cares about them, and he's determined to be motivated not by what is good for Paul, but what is good for them. This is a divine jealousy, he says. And of course, the big reason he says this is because he is, one of the pri he is the one primarily responsible for the marriage of the church, the bride, to the groom, the husband, who is Jesus. He says this, I'm the one that got you together. I'm the matchmaker. And you are the bride and he is the husband. He is the groom. Okay? Now, I feel this metaphor myself. I am now approaching... 600 uh, weddings that I've officiated, which means I've done more than 600 uh, premarital uh, counseling. Uh, the counseling uh, takes 
two or three months to get through. It's six sessions, sometimes seven, maybe even eight, depending on how chatty we get. Uh, there's one couple that attends here that's been here a long time. I did their premarital. It took us nine sessions to get through the premarital because they were so chatty. It was a lot of fun, but it took us nine. Anyway, I've done this for more than 600 couples, but as a result, I feel responsible for how their marriage goes. You know, and, I, and occasionally I'll have somebody walk up to me and go, uh, how many of the couples that you've done premarital for are divorced now? <laughs> I'm like, I don't keep track of that. I have no idea. And by the way, people don't email me and go, hey, well, you married us 15 years ago and we live in Des Moines now, but we just got divorced, wanted you to let you know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I don't know. But anyway, I feel a responsibility. Paul feels this sort of responsibility too, but it is a responsibility to the bride of Christ and to Christ himself as the groom. And the church is not just the bride, but a washed of sin bride because of the cross and the resurrection of the groom. And then in verse 3, another reason Paul needs to <clears throat> take off the gloves, so to speak. Paul uses the example of Satan in the garden deceiving Eve. So in, in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent, the adversary, the accuser, Satan, comes to Eve and Adam, how does he come? Does, does he come at them with a full frontal attack, breathing fire, you know, just going... Okay, here's why. All of us, even non-believers, if Satan came at them that way, if Satan came at us that way, what would we do? Uh, that's a problem, and we'd run the other way. Okay? No, he's smarter than that. So what he does is he kind of sidles up next to us and just starts asking us questions, engages us in inane conversation, what we think is inane conversation. Did God really say that you can't eat of any tree? And, and the woman, she defends God, right? She's good. She defends God. No, no, that's not what he said. He said we can eat of any of the trees in the garden. But there's one tree way over there in the midst, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're not allowed to eat from that. We can eat from all these other ones because if we eat of that one, uh, we will die. And what does Satan say? Wow, you're not going to die. Here's the reason he told you not to eat from there. Because if you eat from there, it'll open your eyes and then you'll be like him. You'll be like God. Okay, you get to be God. If you just sin, you'll get to be God. Okay, um, there's a, some of you have heard me talk about this book before. I love this book. Read it about 20 years ago. It was written by a guy named Vishal Mangalwadi. I just like saying his name. He's from India. He was raised as a Hindu, became a Christian. Now he's an apologist for Christianity. But the name of the book is The Old Ideas Behind the New Age. And his point is, look, the new age is nothing. The new age, one of their tenets is you get to be God. Okay. He says, there's nothing new about that. It was in Genesis chapter 3. It's the oldest lie in the book. You get to be God. Okay? But that's how Satan operates. He just whispers to us. He comes as a friend. Comes as a counselor. Comes as somebody just engaging us in some fun conversation. That's what he does. And so Paul is saying, this is what these guys are doing to you. They're not coming with this full frontal attack where you're going to go, that's a problem. They're coming as your friends, as your counselors, as somebody who's going to build you up and make you even better. But again, here is another reason Paul believes he needs to engage in foolish ways <clears throat> of arguing in order to adjust the perspective of the Corinthians. He's worried that through the deception of the interlopers, they are being led away from Jesus and the true gospel. And they are. They are buying into two different things. They're buying into the false gospel of Jesus plus. Has anybody heard of Jesus plus false gospels? Okay. Jesus is great, but you also need this. 
To be truly saved, you also need this over here. Jesus does his thing, but there's something else over here that you need to do. You need to do it or somebody else needs it. You need to acquire it or whatever. It's Jesus plus. The book of uh, the letter to the Galatians that Paul writes, probably the first letter that he writes in the New Testament, is about the problem of a Jesus plus false gospel. But he's also telling them the other problem is um, uh, the false teaching of what's known as syncretism. So do you know what syncretism is? Okay, so think about the word. I'm, I'm a word nerd, so I love this. So uh, S-Y-N, sin, not S-I-N, but S-Y-N. What does that prefix sin mean? Anybody? With, together. Okay, so with or together. And uh, syncretism, critism, uh, the, the root word would be creed. So together, creed. So syncretism is when you take the gospel and you mix in stuff from the world. So you have, you have the creeds of the world mixed in with the creed of the gospel so that the church starts looking more and more like the world, which then my question is, why don't you just stay home on Sunday if the church looks like the world? The whole point of the church, the whole point of the gospel is that it's different. Not odd, <laughs> but different. Okay? And they're buying into all of that. And it's true. It is true. Often, Christians need to just Close their mouth, take it, get kicked around by the worldly arguments. Yeah, I understand that. You know, it's the idea that it's the idea that you should never fight with pigs because you both end up in the mud and what's and the pig likes it. <laughs> right. Okay. The pig's the only one that likes being in the mud. So that's why. But there are also times when even Jesus says it, sometimes you just gotta shake the dust, which means you have to confront this stuff. You have to stand up and you have to say, all right, I'm done. We're going to have a conversation now. And I get to speak now. Okay? You got you to gotta confront the foolishness head on because it's good for the fool. Okay? Now, you have to be careful. There has to be discernment. You have to rely on the Spirit for this. Okay? So I have a story about this, and I don't tell this story to build me up. This is just what happened. It's one of those times when it had to happen. And I'm not going to name names. <laughs> and and believe, please understand, I have handled conflict really badly far more often than I've handled it well in my life. I feel like at 63, I'm just now beginning to understand how to do this, sort of. <laughs> okay? It's funny, I was talking to Trey. Trey's 29, Pastor Trey. And, and we were talking about some of this stuff, and, and he was telling me some things. You know, I've really learned in the last two years this, this, and this, and this. I'm like, how old are you? And he says, 29. I said, I just learned that stuff last year. You're so far ahead of me right now. But as you all know, Trey is a 60-year-old man trapped in a 29-year-old body, if you know Trey. Anyway, so here it is. This was a form of divine jealousy. There was this person uh, coming to this church for, for quite some time. And, and it got to the point where I just hated to go to coffee with him because it was just going to be everything that's wrong with me and everything that's wrong with the church, okay? And, 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 uh, he just, and, and it was all stuff that um, was not the purpose of the church anyway. He was getting way too involved in cultural situations and stuff that he wanted to bring into the church, you know? And I would just kind of keep my mouth shut and shrug my shoulders, taking it. Um, one person who sat with us one time said, man, you, I'm just repeating that. 
repeat, I'm just quoting the person. He said, man, you, you just repeatedly got kicked in the groin and you just sat there and took it, metaphorically, okay? Sat there and took it. Okay, so anyway, so finally... He emails and says, I'm done, I'm leaving the church, but I want to meet with you one last time before I leave. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, so, um, so I said, okay. So we went and met, and the, the first five minutes was just him unloading again. How awful I am, the staff, redemption, all this stuff. And, and I was like, for five minutes, and five, after five minutes I go, all right, you need to just stop. You, just, you have to stop. And you're going to let me talk now for a while my turn. And so I confronted him on a bunch of this stuff, okay? I said some things to him that I'm sure he felt were really harsh, but they were also true, and I was doing it to try to help him see what was going on so that at least maybe in his next church, by the way, there are people who do this serially around in churches. They just go from church to church doing this kind of stuff. And, and I was hoping that maybe it would open his eyes before he went to this uh, next church, it apparently became the only thing that finally got him to wake up and realize that he was kind of jacked up. And it was really interesting to watch his eyes and his nonverbal communication when I was uh, doing this, when I was talking to him, when I was confronting him, because it was as if he was being roused out of a stupor. It's almost like he had these neural pathways that he couldn't get himself out of. And now suddenly maybe it was, he was being pulled out of it. So uh, I just, I felt like, he needed this shot to kind of wake him up to the fact that he was bringing the world's unhealthy and joyless and destructive ways of power into the church. And we, when we left the meeting, we were shaky, but I felt like we were on better terms. Now, here's the PS to the story. Um, a couple years later, he texted me and said, hey, can we get together for coffee? I'd really like to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know. And, and he came in and he sat down and he said, you know, um, I, I want to apologize to you. He said, you were the first person to have a conversation with me like that, but it was interesting because I had several others with other people uh, about the same thing afterwards. And he said it began to realize that I was the common denominator in all of this. And, and uh, I just, I need to tell you that I, I was wrong. And, and I said, so you're coming back to the church? No. <laughs> no. But, but you see how that works? Sometimes you do just need to kind of go, hey, man, you know, this is, a, this is a form of divine jealousy, and you're probably not going to like it very much, but you really need this adjustment. And let me finish this story by saying this. I can't tell you how many of those conversations have been had where it's directed at me, and I needed it. And not every time did I think I needed it when I sat down with a person and they were giving it to me. But, but in retrospect, I'm like, nah, I needed it. And that's what Paul is doing here. And, and he says, he says, I'm acting foolishly in doing this. And what he's saying is, I'm acting the way the world acts. But it seems like this is going to be the only way you're going to understand it. And he gets even worse. Next week, you're going to see as we get into that, you're, it gets even, it gets even um, he, he just gets more robust in the way he approaches them. So we're, we're way out of time. So let me pray, and uh, we'll see you next week. I'll see you Sunday for past year, present year evaluation. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And I just, I just pray that somehow in the midst of all of this, uh, your Holy Spirit would take the message of your word, your, your love and your grace and your truth, and you would apply it to the hearts of the people who are here. I pray that in Jesus' name. 
Amen.